Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hi, Lou. Hi there. Hi, divers. It's lovely to be back. I've been away, not very far, because we have a hard border <laughs> uh, for now. Yes, we're <laughs> lamenting our hard border. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of torn about it, but mm. yeah. Mm. Um, but it was lovely to have a short holiday, and it's always nice to come home. Lou and I are sitting in her study again. We've got lots of cushions to muffle the sound. And we've got a cup of tea and some biscuits. So we hope you'll do the same because we're going to have a conversation today where we chat about some books that we've been reading that are marketed for younger readers. Yes. Lou, you've got some that are sort of YA and one that's older. Yes, I have. I cover the whole spectrum, probably from age nine through to sort of mid-twenties. Great. And mine, I ended up, I, I don't know why, but I gravitated to all very middle grade. They all ended up being very similar and I loved all of them. And even though the ones I read are marketed for younger readers, I found mine all delightful and I'm a bit addicted. I've ended up reading five this month and I'm about to start a sixth. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. There's just something about really well-written books for this age group that really, you know, you can imagine parents reading them to their children or with their children, their children reading them all together. They're books for me for a family. Yes. So everyone in the family can read them. I agree. And I'm the same. I think Allegra started us on a path. I think so. And I just love... It's our gateway drug. (laughs) It's our gateway drug. (laughs) Uh, I just feel like where have these books been, why have these been missing from my life for so long? They're just, they're perfect for a pandemic Mm. That's mm. the other thing because you can just forget about yeah all the things that are going on in 2020 and, and I, just and lose think, yourself. I think as a genre, you know, and particularly one of the ones that I read, you know, that in order to make things more magical or more scary or more whatever for children these days who are quite different to how we were yeah, as children. True. Everything has to be really exaggerated. Mm. And so everything's on steroids. Yeah. You know, in the books. Yeah. And they're, they're used to movies like that, young yes. kids. Like they're so much more colourful and creative and imaginative and they're not tame at all. No. No, so I, yeah, I look. I and I remind. So they're very diverting. <laughs> they are. They're very diverting. Very distracting indeed. Mm. Um, and it sort of did remind me of a long period I had reading books with my boys, books that they were enjoying reading. Yes. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to read them as well, so yeah. that we've got something yeah. to chat about. Yeah. Oh, I really wish that I'd had these when I mm. was young. I mean, the ones I read, they all do have 
quite considerable narrative tension. They're not bland at all, mm. but it's all completely manageable narrative mm. tension and it's non-stressful in a way that, you know, you, you know you're in a sort of a magical world and it's just so different from the world we're all living. And so they're all very charming and cosy mm. as well. I just, uh, I felt, oh, you know, if only we'd had these when we were young. Mm. And they're better written, oh, much absolutely. better written. There's no Enid Blyton. Kind of, no. with all due respect. Yeah, and I love Dean and Blyton. I did but too. I did you too. You go back and these are just It's a whole new level, streets isn't ahead. it? A yeah. whole new level, Beautiful these writing. writing. Yeah. So what's your first one, Lou? Well, the first one that I have read is The Unadoptables by Hannah Took. Hannah is a, a Dutch girl uh, who I think lived in London from actually the age of the children in this book, I think from the age of 12 onwards. And the Unadoptables opens on the steps of an orphanage in Amsterdam in the late 1800s. It's called the Little Tulip Orphanage. And I just want to set the scene because it feels like a very gothic story. It's very Lemony Snicket. Wow. It's sort of got some of the absurdity that, that those books had from memory. The orphanage feels sort of very foreboding. It's a building without a soul. It's infested with rats. Um, it's freezing. It's winter outside. The canals are frozen. So not cosy at all not like the ones cozy I Not cosy at all. Not cosy <laughs> okay. at all. Um, but it sounds great. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's very bleak and grey and miserable. I mean, on the ground floor, of course, of the orphanage. Where people come. Yeah, where, where yeah. the prospective parents come. Oh, gosh. And the visitors, it's shiny for show. Um, it's clean. But the rest of the orphanage oh. is crumbling. And there are some rigid rules relating to baby abandonment that go something like this. Rule number one, baby must be wrapped in a cotton blanket. Rule number two, the baby must be placed in a wicker bar basket and rule number three the baby must be deposited on the topmost step good grief and we learned that in 1880 much to the disgust of the orphanage matron and eleonora gaspeak i'm not saying it with a dutch accent but it, you know gaspeak i think five babies are abandoned in a manner that breaks all the rules one after each other in August, September, October, November and December. So one is abandoned in a tin toolbox, the next month one in a coal bucket, the next one in a picnic hamper, the November baby is abandoned in a wheat sack and the December baby is abandoned in a coffin-shaped basket. And Matron Gaspeak, who I'll, I'll talk about a little bit in a, in a minute because she's a fabulous character, she gives the five babies all names, Lotta, Egbert, Fenner, Sem and Milou. And really that sort of sets the scene, but the book starts 12 years later when these five children are a sort of devoted gang in the orphanage. They're still at the orphanage because, in the Matron's words, they are unadoptable. Because they weren't dropped off in the correct manner well, or because of their... they're not suitable. They're not suitable. Okay. And many people have come to adopt babies and children over the years, but these five have remained. Mm. Now, one of the children, Milou, she has sabotaged any effort right. to become adopted because she believes her parents are coming back to get her. She's got all sorts of theories that she writes down in her book of theories, Gosh. which is 
interspersed in the pages of this book. You have Malou's book of theories with her little drawings and she adds different theories to little chapters and she weighs the evidence of the theories as the story develops. So there's a little book within a book, which I always love. Uh, I love me that. too. Yeah. And so it's a, that is essentially sort of her diary. And does this tug at your heartstrings or is it done in a fairly matter of fact? Like you're talking about it in a kind of a matter of fact way. Oh, no, way. it definitely tugs at your okay. heartstrings. Um, and, and, and it's not too hard to read. It's not hard to read. I mean, like with Lemony Snicket, I find that these books and sometimes the characters, you know, there is this harshness and this cruelty but there's always this warmth as okay, well. So yeah. There's always the redeeming yeah. features so as well. Balance. So there's always yeah. a balance. Okay, yep. So, yeah, you you know, with a book like this, I imagine children would be scared and worried reading it, but there's always a little bit of hope. Okay. That's, got that's it. how I, yeah. Okay, got it. The cover art on the front page is gorgeous. The illustrator is mm. Aisha Ruby, and she's also illustrated Malou's Book of Theories inside. Oh, so there's little charcoal s- sketches inside which she's done. So that I think that's lovely. Now, Hannah has created Matron Gaspeak as a villain in the classic sense. You know, physically her hair is coiled tightly oh. in a bun and she speaks through gritted teeth. Oh. Um, she has these pointy boots which are polished blood Ooh. red leather. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and she's very cruel and she forces the children into menial labour and she punishes them viciously and mm. she she really detests these five children. Malou is, you know, maybe on that surface she's the leader of the group of five. She's the one that arrived in the coffin-shaped basket oh. and she is the storyteller of the five. And this is what she has to say about the matron. Every monster that Milou has made up for her bedtime stories was based in some way on Gaspeak. The brutal sneer of a gargoyle, the soulless eyes of a werewolf, the skin-itching screech of a banshee. If the matron hadn't been so filled with hatred and menace, she probably would have looked like any other middle-aged woman, but her vileness had transformed her features into something monstrous. Oh, that's very Proustian. Yeah, gorgeous, (laughs) gorgeous. So all five children have got their special individual talents that come in handy throughout the book. So Lotta is a very accomplished mathematician. Fenner, who is largely mute, for a lot of the time, she has a very special way with animals. Sam is the pragmatist. He thinks very clearly, and I think in some ways he's the actual leader of the group, and he's very talented with the needle and thread. And Egg, Egbert, has an incredible knowledge of maps and direction. But the overwhelming thing with the five of them is that you feel this huge bond and that's sort of the glow so they've made a family, yeah, haven't they? Yeah, they have, yeah. definitely. And, of course, for every dastardly villain, and I'd like to, really like to talk to someone about sort of the formula of books like this. Yeah. You know, for every villain like Matron, you need someone to balance the scales and someone who's got the sort of courage to take the villain on, and that child is Milou right. in this book. And she is deeply intuitive and her special talent is her senses. So her ears give her warnings from time to time about people. So she's sort of standing in the shoes of the reader, isn't she? Because the reader really wants someone to stand up. Yeah, she does. She wants someone to. And so Malou is the vehicle to do that. And it's her will. 
and her yeah. sense oh, of self that's gorgeous. that kind yeah. of drives it. Okay. And, and actually it, it's her special sense and her will that causes the children to roll the dice and take the risk of fleeing the orphanage because she says we have to leave. Right. And they set off on a huge adventure basically. And it, it's also her determination to find her parents, which is part of that. So she has her selfish desire but her senses are also telling her we need to leave and you're my family and we all have to go together so that propels them forward but ultimately it's the loyalty and trust between the five of them that becomes part of the story's resolution oh how lovely yeah so the book has a really european sensibility to it obviously the time and place and landscape it's in amsterdam but they go out to the country and there were windmills and dikes i hadn't heard the idea of the reclaimed land being called polders. No. So they talk about the polder air. Okay. And there are tall ships and puppets. Mm. The puppetry to me is a a very European thing. And then there's always the looming threat of the Kinder Bureau that might be trying to find out where they are, where they've disappeared to. And then there's this whole cast of sort of gothic characters. It sounds fabulous. It's a fabulous book. Loved it. So I can really recommend that. Yeah, Um, that sounds wonderful. So that's The Unadoptables by Hannah Took. It's a puffin book. Do you remember your puffin yeah, books? Yeah, I do. I've oh, still got a lot of so them. I do I can't, I'll love, never get rid of them. I just love seeing yeah, anything, on the spine the yep, little puffin. Yep. So this is a puffin book and it's a recent release this year. Yeah, that is gorgeous. I love the cover. Well, well is, you went very international with that one, whereas all of mine are very Australian uh, unwittingly, I, mm. I didn't know that I was doing that. I just, I think I, <laughs> I chose them for interesting reasons. So my first one is called the Secret Library of Hummingbird House Ooh, by lovely name Julianne Negri, and I think it was partly a cover by and partly because it had a library in it. Yes, I was drawn to that. I thought oh, that sounds perfect, and. In this one, Hattie is the main character and she's 10. Her parents have separated and she and her much younger little sister have to do that week about thing where they Mm, one parent for one week and then one week at the other parent's house and that causes her a lot of stress because she has to pack and remember everything for the next full seven days at the other parent's Mm. house. And the class bully teases her relentlessly about all the luggage and the musical instruments and everything, all the paraphernalia that she has to cart to school on the day that she swaps over to the other parent's house. So that's sort of the background of her life. And then there's this beautiful old creaky old mansion in the neighbourhood which has been deserted for years Mm. and it has some lovely old trees and it's always been a very special place for Hattie and her family before the separation and it's still a very comforting place for Hattie, especially a big mulberry tree that she goes and climbs and hides in. And then a sign goes up declaring that the house is going to be Mm. demolished by the local evil developer (laughs) and a block of flats is going to be built on the site. Of course. Yeah, so that's the sort of the dramatic tension Mm. of the story. And this book has some time travel Mm. and mysteries. It has a few twists where adults in her life are revealed to have quite unexpected backgrounds. I won't reveal any of the plot, but I absolutely loved it. It has this wonderful, mysterious library that just goes up and up and up in in the old house. It sort of towers up with Mm. all these interesting topics and it's all divided by subject. And I, I think that was pretty much the reason I chose it. It looked quite magical and delightful. Julianne Negri lives in Melbourne 
and this is her first novel. I thought it was excellent. Um, the writing was very good. It moved at a great pace. The characters were really well fleshed out and they developed as Hattie developed mm. and as Hattie learned more about them and it had a fabulous ending. So I would And magnificent cover art. Yeah, beautiful cover, beautiful. The cover I mean, these of all illustrators of these, are I just... I kept looking at it as I was reading it because it's so... Beautiful, and there's a few little sketches and things inside the book as well. So it was, it was just gorgeous. So that's the Secret Library of Hummingbird House. By and Julianne these are quite Negri. substantial books, aren't they? I mean, they're yeah. not, they're not little. No, no, no. This was three hundred and something pages. Yeah, and the Unadoptables Almost was also. And so I think that idea that they do have some little lists and yeah. pictures yes. and things inside is yeah. a really is a really clever idea. I agree from an attention perspective. Yeah, this one um, opens with all the school rules that she's not allowed to break and they're just fabulous, you know, and you can see this is a kid who is just sick of all the rules, particularly in the school library. Mm. And the titles are lovely and so there's lists of things that there's a journal that's discovered that goes back in time and it's got all the different types of moons and um, different types of supernatural occurrences and unexplained phenomena. So it's very imaginative and Yeah, there's just delightful. complete free range, isn't there, yeah. for the author to just yeah. unleash their creativity, which is why it's such a yeah. fun genre to yeah, read. No, I ripped through that one. Mm. I loved it. Um, what was your next one, Lou? So my next one, which is I think more for a maybe 12, 13, 14-year-old okay. age group, it's The History of Mischief by Rebecca Higgy. So I'm back in Australia with this book, okay. sort of, which I'll explain in a minute. So Rebecca is a West Australian author. I think this is this is her first book and you're going to love it, Virginia, because you've just mentioned libraries, which, oh, will, become, which will become obvious. I love obvious cover. In a minute. I know. That's just extraordinary, mm. isn't it? With a lighthouse, I'm... Big lighthouse, fan. yeah, the sailor and the, and, the, and the, the scrolls, balloon, yes, the big ballooning balloon, just beautiful with the basket. Mm. So the main character in this book is a young girl called Jessie. She's nine. Her parents have died, and so she moves with her older sister, much older sister, Kay. Kay is twenty to live in their grandmother's house, and they live in Guildford, which is an old oh, wow. colonial town in Western Australia. So it's what forty minutes mm. from the CBD. It's not a spoiler. Her parent, Their parents have died in an accident, but their father never got around to selling his mother's house, the girl's grandmother. Now, she's alive and, and they visit her regularly, but she lives in a nursing home. And in oh. fact, she's been in a nursing home since Jessie was born. So they move into this old and neglected house in Guildford. And one day, Jessie is picked up by a neighbour after school, and she's quite anxious, of course, because yes, of, her what she's, gone, what, yeah, yeah. of what she's gone through. South. And she gets home with the neighbour and, and finds Kay there, and there's police cars and locksmiths, and, and she's told that they've been burgled. And then she sort of has a bit of a disjointed evening, and she wakes later that night, still in her school clothes, and she finds her sister in the study, and this is a magnificent room, you know, lined with bookshelves and very dusty books. And part of the carpet in the corner is disturbed. And the girls pull up the carpet and find a trap door. Ooh. And inside the box under the trap door is a single book entitled The History of Mischief. Oh. Hence the title of the book. So at the front of the book is a transcription note which tells the reader that the history of mischief records the secret practice of the art of mischief and its practitioners. 
and that whenever the practitioners are practicing mischief, they assume the title or the name and the initials A mischief. So the transcription goes on to say that this book would ordinarily have had a list of signatures in it of all the practitioners. And if you touch the book, it would give a person unpredictable magical abilities. And then the book was intended to describe in the history all of the acts and feats of mischief that they got up to. Right. But the history has survived thousands and thousands of years and it's begun to deteriorate. Oh, okay. So there are only some records <gasps> of mischiefs that have survived and they've been recorded in the book by the author of the transcription, which is a Henry Byron and a Chloe McKenna. And Henry Byron is listed as A Mischief number 201. And it's dated the 5th of August, 1966, and Kay realises that that's their father's birthday. Ooh. Now, all of this is in the first chapter of the book and on the publisher's back cover, so I'm not giving anything away here. So as you can imagine, nine-year-old Jessie, um, she's clearly a bright little girl, she's absolutely fascinated, and she is desperate to devour every chapter of the history. So that night they read the first chapter, and that is about a mischief the okay. first, and it's set in Athens oh. in 316 oh BC. And the first mischief was an 18-year-old boy who was a slave to Alexander the Great, who was, of course, a Macedonian king, and he has fateful interactions with the Greek philosopher Diogenes. And, of course, Jessie is curious to learn and she's thirsty for knowledge so she wants to learn more about Alexander the Great and Diogenes so she goes to the library for the first time ever the next day at school. Uh Uh-huh. And this is one of the lovely aspects of the book. There's sort of this spotlight on libraries. Yeah, and learning and history. Exactly, and that sort of Uh. quest for knowledge. Jessie's older sister Kay, she works in the State Library Uh in Western Australia and there are several librarians in the book and the author, Rebecca Higgy, was also a librarian. So that's right. rather lovely. Yeah. So Jessie starts researching the first history uh, and she's looking for books and resource materials and she's on the internet and all the rest of it. And she also, this happens with all of the histories that she reads with her sister. Her sister is a great character. You know, she's a 20-year-old. She suddenly has to parent her little sister she has to go to work, she's dealing with the grief of losing her parents and she's a really well-drawn character in the book. You know, she sometimes hides in the bedroom and has a sob. She's trying to protect Jessie. She occasionally flies off the handle. It's all new territory for her having Mm. to parent her little sister. Very well-drawn character. Mm. So reading the history sort of becomes a reward for good behaviour for Jessie and sometimes they read the histories together. I'm not going to go into all the different mischiefs that we meet in the book, but they, they're interspersed with the chapters of Jessie's oh, life. Okay. So we, we meet a mischief in 423 AD China, who is the mother of the female warrior Mulan, wow. not just a Disney character, somebody from real mm. life. Uh-huh. We meet a mischief in the famous Wieslitzer salt mine in Poland in the 1400s. Mm. And then we meet a mischief in Paris during the Paris siege in the 1870s when, when Paris eventually became the Paris Commune. Now, the one thing that's sort of a, a note of caution perhaps, 
Each of the eras that these mischiefs live in, they're not periods of history that most people will be familiar with. Mm. They're sort of not the conventional periods of history on a school syllabus. No. But I don't think that matters and it it certainly sent me scurrying Mm. to find out more about those eras, so it was fantastic, and they've been meticulously researched. Uh So Rebecca has... I know she spent a very long time writing this book and I certainly wanted to know more about those eras. I was sort of checking, is that a real person? Yes. And they were all real people and it was all, not the mischiefs, but the era within which the mischief Mm -hmm. was living. And, of course, reading the histories puts Jessie on high alert about her own life. I mean, after all, they have discovered this book in her grandmother's house. With, yes, with her father's birthday. Yeah, and she's curious and she's suspicious about the connection and the sort of goings-on in her surroundings right. and near her grandmother's house. I'm not going to tell you any more about the plot, but there are some great cameo characters supporting the little girl. I've mentioned her sister Kay and her grandmother, but there's this neighbour who lives opposite her grandmother's house She's a Mrs. Moran, and she's been known to vacuum her front lawn (laughs) at 3 a.m. in the morning. And she seems very strange and dotty, but there's a lot more to Mrs. Moran. (laughs) And then there's also a little boy in Jesse's class who's desperate to be friendly with Jesse. He can't keep still. He's different, in inverted commas, to all the other kids, and he's barely tolerated by any of them. And his name's Theodore, and he's, he's fabulous. So all of sort of those characters play this role in giving the book, you know, despite the fact that it's diving into history and not Australian history, it's still a very contemporary felt, Australian oh, story. Lovely. You know, you still, yeah. it felt a bit allegory in yeah. terms of the little girl in the classroom oh. and you did feel you were very much in an in, in, so in it's Australian, sort of anchored in the place absolutely. and then you travel from yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Gorgeous. Her manuscript for this book won the 2019 Fremantle Press Fogarty Literary Award last year. Right. And that's a biennial prize for an unpublished manuscript for an author between the ages of 18 and 35. So I'd, I'd been very keen to read this. We have actually had some queries, haven't we, about buying some Australian books. Yes. From our listeners. I always recommend Booktopia. Booktopia. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I agree. Instagram doesn't let me type it in. Oh, okay. How interesting. Yep. It does not want me to type in booktopia.com. Is that right? Yep. It says this message cannot be sent because you have breached our guidelines or something. So I have really? to type booktopia, leave a space, then .com. And can you not do hashtag booktopia? You can't I tag them. tried a hashtag. And we can't tag them. Have, I can't put their name in. How fascinating. Mm. Yeah. That's the power of Facebook it's, that owns Instagram. Mm-hmm. Well, also with some of the independent presses, you can obviously buy the books directly from them as well. Yeah. But, yeah, I was going to say Booktopia because we have had lots of queries, yeah. not just from children's books, yeah. but adult books. Yeah, they're uh, great for, for Australian, Australian books that you can't yeah. get overseas yet. Yeah, yeah. Booktopia. Yeah. Okay, good. So, yeah, I yeah. recommend that. That's um, The History of Mischief, Rebecca Higgy, Fremantle Press. Gorgeous. That sounds fantastic, Lou. What's your next one? Uh, my next one, oh, so I bought two of these when I was down south and I'm going to go and buy the third one today. So this is called The Girl, the Dog and the Writer in Rome. Oh. 
by Katrina Nanestat. And you had me at the title. The title Look at is that. divine. And when you see the three of them together, oh. they're all in these sorbet colours. So this one's pale pink and pale lemon. Then the Provence one, which is the second one, is in sort of lavender colours. Oh. And then there's Lucerne, which I think is in a, a beautiful mint green How tone. beautiful. And they've got these beautiful illustrations of the girl, the dog and the writer with their crazy curly hair. And So this was a complete cover by. I didn't know what age group I was getting. I just knew it was for a younger reader and I thought that would fit the bill. And Katrina Nanestat lives in New South Wales mm. and she's written lots of children's books, it turns out, when you look on the inside cover. This one has an 11-year-old girl named Freya and she's lived a pretty wild life with her mother who is a famous naturalist and they've travelled to Antarctica and all over the world pretty much and they've uh, studied rare animals and mating habits. Um, I think I would picture a young female David Attenborough for, yes. the, for the mother. Mm. And then her mum, they come back to London, where they come back every year for two months over Christmas, and the mum discloses that she's sick, very sick, and that she has to go to a clinic in mm. Switzerland. And she, you know, she's very upset and she tells Freya that Freya is going to be looked after by Tobias Appleby. And when I first read this, I thought, what on earth is a mother doing leaving her daughter with a strange man? Yes. <laughs> you know, in 2020, you just don't, don't seem, do that. Yes. But then we meet Tobias Appleby and he turns up shortly after that in a funny old motorcycle that backfires all the time with one of those sidecars. And he has, in, in sitting in the sidecar, is an enormous Irish wolfhound oh. puppy called Finnegan. Oh. And Tobias turns out to be completely delightful. He's a successful crime writer. He's very absent-minded. Yeah. But he's so kind and lovely and he's so positive and he totally gets Freya because she's naturally very distressed about her mother's illness and being thrust off with this strange person and he just gets that balance right of looking after her and also leaving her be a little bit so she sort of sits in the room with him while he's typing away his novels and he's completely absent-minded and goes off in his own head with his stories and and then sort of checks in with her and she, he's he's just lovely to her it's, it's gorgeous and a friend of her mother it's mm, unclear yes the connection. i know what i'm thinking <laughs> i know what i'm thinking and, and but the, the the reader uh, obviously has lots of theories yes. about the connection and it's unclear the connection between tobias appleby and freya's mother yes but at one stage uh freya thinks oh maybe he's an uncle and i've read two books in the mm. series so far and i still don't know they still I'm, haven't given yeah, up the story. so i'm pretty sure that's why i'm so keen to read third yes. well, I'm, well apart from the fact that i've loved them yeah but i i'm hoping that w that will be revealed and of course you have theories about it mm. but you don't know yes uh, and there's cute little giveaways and little yeah. they're probably leading you in the wrong direction yes and so events lead them to go to rome mm. and tobias has um some book promotion that he can do mm. in rome for his latest book and they go in the motorcycle with all their luggage sort of packed around them and they sort of settle into their pension in Rome. So we're back in Italy like we oh, were last episode. Yes. And this does have a lovely flavour mm. of Italy, modern-day Italy. And uh, suddenly some very sinister-ish priests 
Ooh. start following them, not not all together. So one turns up and says a few sinister things and then and they've got suspicious shoes, very shiny shoes that don't seem to fit with what you might expect a, a priest who's taken a vow of poverty to wear. And then another one will appear. Sounding a bit Opus Day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. not quite that sinister, but, you know, it, it is a bit odd, the mm. whole thing. And they're a little bit threatening. Mm. And Freya, not having attended school other than for one week, has some social anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of her issue that she's sort of grappling with. But uh, the lovely thing is she starts making friends in mm. Rome and sort of gaining self-confidence. So they build this lovely circle of people around them. And then drama unfolds with these priests mm. and lots of things happen and there are chases in the motorcycle God, all around delightful. the Trevi Fountain and mm. all, all the tourist spots mm. at Squad. They, they go down the Spanish steps yeah, in the do. motorcycle. Um, there are underground tunnels. It's full of action and it's a lovely image of Which of means the author must have spent quite a bit of time yes. in these cities. You, yes, I hope she did for her sake. <laughs> So, yeah, gorgeous. Uh, my favourite character is Finnegan, mm. the, the Irish wolfhound. Oh. He's absolutely scrumptious and he saves the day. Of course. Uh, many times. Um, and I've read the second one set in Provence and I loved that one just as much. You know, sometimes mm. the second book's never quite as good. Yes. Just as original, just as good. I, I loved it and I'm going to go and get the one set in Lucerne, which I'm assuming uh, means that they head off to where the mother is yes, in, in, the, the, in, the, in the clinic. In the clinic. Yes, around the lake. Yeah. yeah. So I absolutely loved it. I've just, it's just been a lovely escape. And so that's The Girl, The Dog and The Writer in Gorgeous. Rome by Katrina Nanestad. And you'd say that was for eight, nine-year-old? I a bit would longer, say a bit 10, older, 11, 10, 11. 10, 11, yes. 10, 11, and pro- pro- no, Well, frankly, you know, my age. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, I mean, there is that period of your life when you're sort of, I don't know, 16 or 17, where you wouldn't be seen dead reading something no. like this. But it really, anyone. But also there it. were those books when you were that age as well that you did reach for secretly yes, just because they home. represented comfort, yeah, didn't comforting. they? Yeah. I often went back to yeah. that yeah. sort of yeah. same old. Lots of people do. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, as we've talked this yeah. year with the pandemic. Yeah, you know, and Gretchen Rubin, who I think I've mentioned mm. before, has several children's book book clubs mm. that she's in because she was one of the first people to sort of publicly say, I just love children's literature. Yes. And so friends would contact her and say, oh, let's start a group and they mm. read all the children's books together and she's in several of them now. Fantastic. <laughs> because there's so many people yeah. who love reading children's yeah, literature. It's, it's not just for children. No, I, I look, this year I oh completely <laughs> converted back to it. I love it. Yeah. So that was great. What about you? What was, oh, you've got your next yes. slightly old, much older yes, one. Really. much older. Well, this is really an adult fiction book, but I wanted to include it because the protagonist is in her early 20s. Right. Uh, and it also, and I sort of, I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning, the book does concern mental illness, anxiety uh, and death. So if you'd prefer not to listen to it, I'm only going to be a few so minutes. So more than... Interesting, more than you would do a trigger warning for the unadoptables. No, okay, absolutely. So it's more gritty. Well, because this is it's written for real an and contemporary okay. and happening now. Okay. Whereas these books are clearly fantasy okay. and, and no, absolutely. Yes. So it's more that if people are 
don't really want to hear yeah. about books concerning mental illness, yeah, then I you know, d- just sort of tune out for a few minutes. So this is The Morbids by Eva Ramsey. And this has been sent to me by uh, Isabel O'Brien from Allen and Wynn. So thank you very much, Isabel. I'll be honest, when I first read the back cover, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to give myself fully to this book at the moment because we've had such a strange year. Yeah. And I didn't think I wanted to read a book about a young woman dealing with a trauma. Right. And her struggle sort of to deal with the impact of it on her on her life. Right. But I was wrong. Ah. It's really well written and it's very compelling and uh, it's so relevant for now. And I think the author deals in a really adept way with mental illness. Oh, okay. So Caitlin is in her early 20s. She's sharing a very sort of down-at-heel shabby flat in Sydney with somebody she never sees and she's working in a sort of upscale bar. And the, the opening chapter of the book sets the tone. She is sitting in a community hall in Surrey Hills on a Tuesday night with a motley group of people who all suffer from anxiety. And particularly, they suffer from a fear of death and dying. Oh, okay. Hence the name of the book, The Morbid. So it's a group. It's for, an informal therapy for, group. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the therapist comes and goes. There's not much organisation to it. So they, they tend to kind of give each other therapy. Okay. Essentially. So it's more like a support group maybe? Yeah, it is. The, the, there is a nurse or a therapist oh, okay. there, but mm-hmm. they don't loom large at all. And look, bear with me because I don't want you to think that I'm not taking this seriously, but that scene is really funny. Okay. So each of the morbids is convinced that they're going to meet their demise in a different way. Oh. They have a primary way that they think they're going to die. I've got to stop laughing. <laughs> and then they have a secondary way that they think they're going to die. Oh. So Caitlin is in therapy because she's had an accident, but her preoccupation is that she's going to die after being mugged or assaulted. And she also has a secondary way, which I won't go into. Lots of people could relate to this. Mm. It is totally and utterly relatable, Uh, particularly, well, for anybody suffering mental illness, but particularly for young people, which is why I wanted to include it today. And she's the narrator. The book is in the first-person narrative. And as she describes the sort of anxieties and fears of her fellow freaks, as they are regarded by some people, you know, her dry humour and her black humour just makes you laugh out loud. It's really funny. But there's always a warmth. So she continues to visit this group throughout the book. You're never left feeling that their fears are ill-founded or unreasonable. You think they're amusing and irrational at times, but you, you know that the anxiety is genuine. Yeah, and, okay. and I think that's a real feat yes, to be able is. to make that really funny. Yes, without um, mocking them without or belittling them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. And so, oh, yeah. and also Caitlin as the narrator, she's able to inhabit both spaces. She's the person with the mental illness, but she's also the person observing mm, it. Observing other people's yeah. version of it. So yeah. that kind of sets the standard for what becomes a very layered book. And by the way, Caitlin is not very good at sharing about how she's feeling. But of course, the reader knows right. how she's feeling. Okay. So it's again, it's, it's more layers there. Yeah, it's yeah. it's okay. fabulous. And then things start to become more complicated because Caitlin isn't where she expected to be at her age, and she's trying as hard as she can to bury this anxiety. Her family are very insensitive, and you know, really want to just to get on with it. You know, Put like yourself together. Yeah, that cor- sort of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, her mother is completely disappointed in her. Oh, it's cool. one of the scenes that I've found quite hard to read uh, when she sits in a coffee shop with her family and her best friend Lena who is known to her family at large is getting married and of course everybody's very excited about Mm. it and 
irritated that Caitlin isn't responding to that happiness and she wants Caitlin to be her bridesmaid. Yeah. And and then there's the prospect of a possible love interest for Caitlin as well. And you just feel this dead weight of inertia. It's it's very, very cleverly Gosh, done. And these, of course, you know, your friend getting married when mm, you're not mm. married, people being in good jobs when you're not in yeah, a good job. People these in are, a different life stage from you. Yeah, but it, these are all things that many people in their 20s might yeah, face. Yeah. Most, I would yeah, say, yeah. in their 20s. But she's maintaining this facade. Yeah, which and, we all do. Absolutely. But <laughs> she's trying extent. to also push away these very morbid thoughts. Yeah. So you really feel that sort of cold weight on her shoulders and her potential to unravel. So I'm going to leave the story there. I really recommend this book. It's very clever and it's very sort of modern and for now. that sounds so good, Lou. That's The Morbids by Eva Ramsey, Um, Alan and Unwin. Great book. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. What is your third? Uh, Well, I'm going back to sort of more lighthearted. Yes, it's always good. (laughs) Yeah, which is probably a good way to end up. (laughs) (laughs) So mine is another Australian writer. I had no idea that I was doing that, and it's called The Orchard Underground by Matt Larkin. Mm. He's based in Melbourne, and this is his first book as well. So I've got two debut Melbourne writers today. Again, with an amazing cover. Yes, yeah, That stunning. one is exquisite. Stunning That cover. might just be my favourite. That is gorgeous. The sloth. There's a little oh, sloth. It's just Beautiful. Gorgeous. But, again, quite European covers, all of these, aren't they, don't you think? Yes. And that, I was going to say that about this. All my books are written by Australians. One's obviously set in Rome and starts mm. in London. But the first one um, and the third one, so the Hummingbird Lane one or whatever it is, Hummingbird... Mm house Mm. um, and this one have a very vivid location but they could have been anywhere in the world which I rather like so they they have a strong sense of place of the place that they're in but it could be anywhere yeah okay (laughs) so there's a universality to it Mm. which I, I rather liked I actually didn't appreciate that this author, Matt Larkin, was another Melbourneian until I had finished and got to the end. I actually thought that it was America for a while and then I thought it was the UK and then I didn't know Mm. (laughs) and then I just got involved in the story and didn't worry. So this one has a a young boy of Indian background, I would say. His name is Pre Kohli and he's Mm. an 11-year-old boy. Uh, he's the main character, and he lives in a sort of a new housing estate called Dunn's Orchard, mm. which is a place that seems to have no orchard at all. Oh, dear. <laughs> and <laughs> Maybe it used to be an orchard before they built it. Yeah, you're on the right track. Oh, okay. So, so Pre lives with his parents and uh, a younger sibling and a mother who is very, very quiet. I'm not sure whether what her issues are, but the dad sort of keeps everyone going and they all try not to upset the mm. mum and she's sort of a little bit absent. And the town is run by a bigwig mayor. <laughs> you can just, love them. Yeah, and his name is Torvald Dunn, mm. which interestingly... When you read the name Torvald Dunn, it actually looks a little bit like Donald Trump (laughs) on paper. It's sort of got a lot of the letters, which I found quite amusing. And he is a big developer. He's keen on progress and he wants to cut down trees and build more houses on his estate. I'm thinking it's a a not too strong a bow to draw. Yeah, yeah. It might be just pure coincidence (laughs) that he's chosen that name for his character. And 
Torvald Dunn lives in a big tower above his office block and there's a mysterious lift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got the picture. So Pre has had a, a bit of a falling out with his best friend Evan from school. Mm. And Evan is now hanging out with some awful boys mm. and it, it's sort of apparent to the reader that Evan's not entirely happy about this but things progress along mm. that pathway. And so Pre, you know, who's now doesn't have a friend, has teams up with this real live wire uh, named Attica Stone and she's a little bit older than him. Uh, she's probably 12 or 13. And picture Pippi Longstocking. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yep. And she is just the most fabulous character. She's new to Dunn's Orchard. She doesn't seem to have any parents. She seems to have a lot of freedom and she's pretty smart and she's a bit investigative and completely fearless. Mm. And she starts asking questions of Pre about why is there no orchard here and and what is really going on down at Razzie Wood, which is a scary wood mm. uh, just outside the precincts of the town and all the children in the town have been told there's a bogeyman down there and they've been warned to stay away and they do. It's scary. And Pre and Attica start investigating and they stumble on a very strange secret and more and more mysteries in their town. And then there's a fantastic third little friend that Pre has whose nickname is Slotcar. I can't remember why she's called Slotcar. And she's actually this very cool genius. And mm. who, she says these profound things that seem to have no bearing on anything, but they actually reveal that she's worked out a mystery or something yes. that's going on and she's trying to explain it all to Pre and Attica using these little teaching stories or metaphors or <laughs> um, so they, they're sort of a bit dismissive of her. She comes out with things that appear to have make no sense and then it becomes apparent that she's three streets ahead of them yes. and she's worked it all Savant. out. She's a fantastic character. Mm. And like the first book, The Hummingbird House one, this one does go into magic and it's really imaginative and fantastical. Mm. There's an underground cave and um, an amazing railroad and tubes that go down underground and crazy trees and there's a mysterious river and there's some very shady and suspicious characters. And there's a race against the clock and there's a chase on a motorbike, yes. a little bit like my Rome one. I absolutely loved it. I really couldn't put it down. The other thing that I really loved was that Matt Larkin does that thing that writers sometimes do where they let the reader in on a secret or, yes, or something. Uh, that the characters don't know. Yeah. yeah. And it's fun when you've worked it out yes. they haven't and you watch them sort of coming around to that. So, And that's that can be really good if it's done well mm. and it's done well in this. And it, this is also quite funny in parts and, as you know, I love writers that mm. can write funny and I get the impression that Matt Larkin is just a great big kid yes. with a crazy yes. wild imagination. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, and I loved it. I would read other books by him. He's great. So that was The Orchard Underground by Matt Larkin. This is a great collection of books, I think, for people wanting to buy some gifts for children for Christmas. Yeah. You know, that's a really lovely selection yeah. we've got here, don't you think? Absolutely. We we should post a closer to Christmas. Yeah, which, I think well, we, we should. We will post photos yeah. of these on our Instagram yeah. account. But you're right. If you've got a young reader in your life, you can't go wrong with any of these. No, I think. I think they're a beautiful group of books. 
Excellent. Uh, so what else have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I have a huge bone to pick with you, Virginia <laughs> Seymour, a huge bone to pick with I you. I know where this is going. <laughs> because you mentioned two words recently and it has sent me into a tailspin. Home edit. <laughs> Sorry. It becomes a disease. So I started watching the first episode of Home Edit. I don't think I had even finished the episode. I was in the car and I was at the home storage place buying boxes. Now you know why I went on and on and on and I'm still going on to anyone who will listen about my pantry. And you did notice when you came no, in that the studio now has lots of Perspex containers. Perspex containers filled with things that I can now see. So, so yeah, look, I have just become addicted. And, and I, as you know, having poo-pooed, <laughs> During the pandemic, you mentioning people colour-coding their bookshelves. I have now colour-coded my bookshelves as if I didn't have anything else to do. So on a day when I actually had quite a lot of work to do and I had lots of other priorities, I started to colour-code my bookshelves. So funny, Luke. Actually, that wasn't even in the pandemic. That was our episode, I think, Oh, was that room? I can't remember. Remember now. when people were on Insta or they were on video and they had a room? Oh, when I was talking about room rater and room people rater. who colour code their books, and I was just completely so was dismissive. Said, well, they might be able to do what they want, but how, how can they find their books? Now, this is the interesting thing because I assumed that if you colour code now, and bear in mind, I have not rainbowed them, so I've got all my red books together, all my orange <laughs> books together, all my blue books together. It's not going to last. No, it's not no, going to no. last. But anyway, you know, it's lasting. For for a short it's while, and I'll put, a, I'll put a picture yeah, on Instagram, and then, and then they'll be messed up again. Karen will love this; <laughs> she will. Uh, but I thought you wouldn't then be able to find books. It's actually really easy to find books. I, it's almost like you're giving them their own distinct. <laughs> anyway, oh my goodness! Uh, See, the thing is, I can't. I don't remember books by their spine, but I think there are some people who do. I do. The spine is quite, and often the spine isn't the same colour as the cover. No. No. So that can be confusing. Well, as well, also now what's happening is that illustrators are wrapping the illustration around the book. Yeah. So <laughs> so I can recognize the spine. Oh my God. Anyway, you have anyway, to post some photos. Yeah, I will have to post some photos. So, funny. But the thing is, I say it's like a disease because once you start, I know. Everywhere you look is untidy. So, so you is start... the man out at Howard Storage World your new best friend as well? Well, the funny thing... I know about... all their stock. <laughs> well, the funny thing about Howard Storage is I walked in and it wasn't, I think it might have been during the school holidays, I bumped into three people <laughs> I knew. Oh, yeah. And one of them, as I walked in, she just turned to me and smiled and she said, home edit? <laughs> she... I hadn't seen her for weeks. It's just, home edit? <laughs> anyway, that's your fault, oh, oh Virginia. God. Completely your fault. So and then the other thing I did, and I did binge this one evening when everyone was out, I watched the Netflix series, six episodes of Duchess, right. starring Catherine Ryan, who I don't know if she's Canadian or an American actress. She's a comedian. Does she say oot? Uh, I need to go oh. oot of the house. <laughs> no, I don't think she does. That's I don't how think I tell she Canadians. does. She lives in the UK and she's been a okay. comedian oh, and on okay. television shows, quiz right. shows. But she's a stand-up comic who lives in 
permanently, I think, in England. Right. And so this is a mini-series, a fictional mini-series that she is the star of and she plays a woman who is a single mother of a very precocious daughter called Olive and, you know, she dresses outlandishly. She's extremely rude and irreverent. If you don't like bad language or bad behaviour, please don't watch it. It's very, (laughs) very funny and her daughter Olive is very precocious and spends quite a bit of time parenting her mother. Oh, so Uh, this reminds me of Ab Fab, you know, it's it is. It's a modern, yeah, it's it's quite a modern Ab Fab in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Where the daughter's more prim and proper than the mother. Uh, Yes, about some things. Okay. Yeah. A sort of modern incarnation. And she has an Australian boyfriend, um, the mother, but she's trying to decide whether she should have her baby with her ex-husband. And is the Australian boyfriend a real Australian? I think he is, yes. He's a a dentist and he's an Australian. No, no. And her ex-husband is a... You know, ex-boy band member, oh, okay. Irish, crazy. It's very unhinged and messy, <laughs> but fabulous. Loved yeah, it. So um, that's The Duchess and that's on Netflix. That sounds like a good diversion. Yeah, it is a good diversion. What about you? What have you been um, diving into? Well, because I've been away, I haven't been diving into much, but I did start watching Emily in Paris Okay, <laughs> on Netflix and I've seen lots of fairly derisory comments mm. about it and I... I agree with them all. Oh, really? It's pretty terrible. She's, yes. She's this sort of... Who's starring in it? Lily Collins. Oh, okay. And it opens with Kate Walsh, ah. who we mentioned who's here in Perth here in for Perth. the pandemic. Yes. Kate Walsh plays a woman in the sort of marketing firm who falls pregnant. And this is not a spoiler. It's in the opening scene. Yes. And can't take up her forthcoming job okay. in the Paris office. Yes. So Lily Collins gets to go instead. Emily gets to go instead. And Emily is this fairly arrogant and ignorant American who doesn't speak any French and just charges her way in and goes into meetings and just speaks American. At people. Speaks at people. And she's terribly full of her own uh, self-worth and really irritating. But I'm quite sure I'm going to watch the whole series. Okay. (laughs) Even though you've bagged it, I'm still going to watch it as well. Because we can't go anywhere and it's all beautiful Paris and she goes into this gorgeous Parisian bakery and gets a pan au chocolat and the the beautiful and the French people in it are just divine. Yes. Genuine French people. And so I I, I just yeah. watched it for the that. The visual is gorgeous, yeah, yeah. yeah, and the clothes and all that. Yeah, but she's gorgeous. just horrendously gauche and cringingly bad, you know, okay. as a character. I yes. mean, the acting's okay, yeah. but the character is just cringingly bad. But, yeah, I'll watch the whole series. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Virginia and I also just want to remind you to get your copies of Edith Wharton's A House of Mirth from the library, yes. from your parents' bookshelves, yep. from your friends, from your booksellers, because we will be reading it complete with spoilers at our last episode for the year in December. And also, those of you in book clubs, please send us a little summary about your book club. We've had a few entries, but we want a few more, please. Yeah, so if you're in a book club and you think um, your book club would like to read with us, contact us and tell us a little bit about your book club because Louise has got eight copies to send out to the winner. Excellent. So we hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing about some books for 
younger readers that you may not have considered reading. If you like reading for calm and escapism, you might consider this genre because these books were all excellent. And if you've enjoyed our podcast, we would love it if you would tell a few friends about it and give us a rating and a review because that helps more people to find us. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.